Thanks for listening to this sermon podcast for Real Life Church Pullman. We exist to help people know and become like Jesus. We are going to continue our our Good Church series. Uh, We're in week seven, so we only have one more week left, eight weeks total. Uh, Are you guys getting something out of this? Good. It's it's encouraging to hear uh, how discussions and home groups and things are going within um, you know this series and how it's you know bringing up some stuff and that's good. We want we need some stuff brought to the surface, but also I want to make sure we're laying the foundation for where we're headed. You know we are moving forward as a church, and this is the expectation when you come into real life church Pullman, whether that be someone who just comes on a Sunday or you're in leadership or pastoring, whatever it is. This this is the expectation. This is what we're 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 making sure is part of who we are as a people and how people are treated. And uh, we met with the staff this last Monday. We did our 2024 planning schedule, trying to figure what we want to do next year. And really two words came to mind when I thought about kind of the vision for next year, and it was health and sustainability. You know, as we, as we build on top of what is Tove, what is the good church, you know, we're, we're, we're seeking a healthy culture, a healthy culture that honors the Lord and glorifies him, as well as builds for the future, right? We want, I would love to be able to, to pass off a healthy, loving, toe-filled church culture to our children and grandchildren. Uh, I think that is what this is all about. We, uh, as pastor, you know, you think this is an interim position. No one does this forever, right? And I want to make sure we leave the next generation of believers with something even better than what we ever saw, what we could ever see in, in our lifetime. And so, that is the motivation I hope that we all have for what we're doing here. This is more than just a, a sermon series that you hear and you're like, wow, that, you know, that was good stuff, good, good, good information, but this really becomes who we are as a people. We live this out. So let's review. We have a few number of weeks now under our belt, and so we talk about things that we must resist and things we must value within the good church. So let's go through these together. I won't make you recite them because there's too many now, but let me just read them for you. So the first week we looked at, we resist narcissism and value empathy. Second week, we we resist false narratives and value truth. Third one was we resist power by fear and value grace. So remember that phrase, space for grace. Then we said uh, we resist institution creep and value people first culture. So what happens when the organization or institution becomes more important than the people? We see not good stuff. We see raw in the Hebrew. And the next last week we looked at we resist loyalty culture and value justice. So what happens when our loyalty, we looked at the story of King Saul when he was putting Jonathan in a difficult situation where he had to choose between loyalty to his father or killing David, an innocent man. And so what happens when the culture is a loyalty-driven culture where we have to defend someone who's doing the wrong things in order to choose what is just or right? And so we looked at that last week. And this week we're introducing a new one. It's called We Resist Celebrity Culture and value service. We resist celebrity culture and value service. And this one is really going to poke in the eye of our culture at large, I think. This one is really going to be a poke in the eye because we love celebrities as a culture. I mean, this goes back thousands of years as soon as the first community said, here's somebody we're going to pop up and show off Right? This, is, this is what's important to us, is this person and our values and things. And so we love celebrities. And in fact, if you've watched any football games over the last month, you all know who Taylor Swift is dating. And it's really loud and in your face, right? Um, I can't not watch football now without hearing about Taylor Swift, which is really interesting to me. Um, 
But we, we love celebrities as a culture. We're, we're obsessed with them, you might say, about people who are powerful, successful, good-looking, whatever that might be, whatever where we're projecting into people. We love raising them up, putting them on pedestals, and talking about them. That is like our favorite thing to do in Western society. And like it or not, it's a part of, of our culture. It's who we are as a people. I mean, it's driven through multi-generations by this point, probably to the 10th power about celebrities and, their, and our kind of obsession with them. It's gotten so bad that psychologists have even uh, come up with a phrase for it called celebrity worship syndrome. Celebrity worship syndrome. And what happens also in in churches, in fact, and, and I think even in my own life, I had to really assess my own life going through this stuff, was as someone who is involved in a lot of church things, pastors and theologians become my celebrities. You know, you start looking at people who are teaching well and coming up with really insightful information. And, and if you were to go to their church, you'd be like, oh, you're so lucky. Man, you get to go to their church and sit under their teaching. That is fantastic. And, and I've done that. And I'm like, ooh, that's probably not healthy for that in person. not healthy for me to do that because we, we tend to do that just naturally. And we all fall into celebrity worship syndrome. And one psychologist, Dr. James Horan, said this about this particular phrase. He says, celebrity worship at its heart, seems to fill something in a person's life. It gives them a sense of identity, a sense of self. It feeds a psychological need. In our society, celebrities act like a drug. And so when we see somebody who is in that celebrity status, we look at them and go, wow, like, I want to be like that. I want to look like them. I want to act like them. I want to have the smarts like them. I want to be able to read the Bible like them or whatever that might be. And it starts to, to fill something within us, a sense of identity. In fact, if you were to, like social media has obviously blown this up to the 10th degree as well, right? So, you know, if somebody famous was supposed to follow you on Instagram, you'd probably say, well, not to brag, but Brad Pitt follows me on Instagram, right? It would be something that we, we find our, our identity in and we find some kind of satisfaction in, in this idea of a celebrity type of a relationship with one another. And there seems to be a subconscious desire just within humanity in general to idolize anything that's better, greater, richer, well-known, or powerful than us. We, we just tend to do that as humans, to idolize someone who is further along, up there for us. And what we do is we put them on pedestals, right? Here is the perfect person, right? And, and we do this. We, we may not say it outright. We may not be boastful about it. Like I'm kind of being dramatic with it a little bit. But I'll tell you, as a, one of the best Pullmanites of all time, John Elway, was to walk in this room, you'd start, I'd start crying. Um, just saying. Like I, I have this, like, there's a celebrity, this or that, even in me. And I think all of us have that because we, we idolize people. We put them up on pedestals and we want to be like them. And, and the result of this is a consumeristic culture. This is one of the byproducts of this is that we become consumers of each other. You know, we, we end up looking at celebrities and say we want to take from them everything that they have to offer. And until they, they change or they do something we don't like, then we can cut them out of their lives, right? Not a very healthy dynamic within a community. You know, celebrities, they find their worth and their value in the praise of the people, right? They find their entire meaning in how people view them and their praise. And so that becomes a, a terrible thing even for them, that they will fall and they will suffer because they're looking at this full sense of identity in a negative way. It becomes a, a take and use type of a dynamic. We're taking, we're using people, becomes consumeristic. And whenever that enters into a, a community, it becomes negative, and especially if it enters into a church environment. You know, those who look to celebrities are looking to consume the things a celebrity can offer. Right? What can you offer me? 
that I can consume and, and take and be a part of. On the other side, celebrity finds their identity and value in what they are praised for, consuming a false sense of one's importance. Okay, and so we see a consumeristic environment within these celebrity cultures. So within this type of culture enters the church, the result is ra, the Hebrew word for toxic or bad or not what God intended. Right? This is not how the assembly of God's people are to function as we put people on pedestals and we admire and they say, wow, you take care of us and you go fight our battles for us and you go do all the things that you need to do while we all are going to just kind of support you, sustain you, make sure everything is going okay. That is, that is not a, a godly view of a, an assembly of God's people. In fact, Israel will fall into this idea and will actually suffer the consequences for it. And so we're going to read from 1 Samuel chapter 8, 6 through 9. 1 Samuel chapter 8, 6 through 9. And the context of this passage is Israel wants a king. So they have been ruled by judges. A judge is, again, like we talked about last week, is, a, is just a ruler or a leader. So God would raise up these judges, someone who would do justice for Israel. He would raise them up, whether that be Gideon, Deborah, Samson. You can know probably a few of them on top of your head. In times of peril, he would raise them up and they would be these military leaders or strategic leaders. Some of them were prophetesses and prophets. And so they would be raised up to defend Israel. Well, Israel got kind of tired of this whole raise them up kind of thing. And they said, we want a king. We want somebody who will fight our battles for us, who we can admire, we can follow, just like the other nations do. Everyone other has a nation, has a king. We want a king. And so here's the context of this is Israel now comes to Samuel and asks for a king. So if you'll follow along with me in verse 6, it says, When they, Israel, said, Give us a king to judge us. This is a rule over us. Okay, Rule over us. Samuel considered their demand wrong, so he prayed to the Lord. But the Lord told him, Listen to the people and everything they say to you. They have not rejected you. They have rejected me as their king. They are doing the same thing to you that they have done to me. Since the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day, abandoning me and worshiping other gods. Listen to them, but solemnly warn them. Tell them about the customary rights of the king who will rule over them. And so they're saying, hey, we want somebody who's going to tell us exactly what we have to do. We need somebody who's going to go out and fight our battles for us. They're going to check the boxes. They're looking at these kings and their nations. They're looking at the rulership of these kings and going, boy, that's so simple. We can sit in our homes. We can farm. We can do all the things we need to do. This person will just take care of everything else. Right? This is like the first case of real celebritydom within Israel. Is they're going to raise up somebody that they can put on a pedestal and go, look at our king. Look how great he is. Look how awesome he is. You know, the king was the the reflection of the, of the nation out into the world, right? And so rather than that being the Lord, right, which is how the Lord was designing, hey, you're a people who reflect me, they wanted a king to reflect them on earth so that he would reflect that out. He would fight the battles. He would tell them what was right and wrong. He would be the law and the justice, okay? Because other nations had this and because they felt like they really needed this type of idea. And, and God says, make sure you tell them what this means, Make sure you tell them the customary rights of the Make sure they understand what they're asking for. Okay? So what happens, though, when a church asks for a king? Because, again, humanity, we want this. We like kings. We like rulers. We like what we might call, even in, in our kind of day and age, a CEO type of pastor who can do all the strategy, who can do all the, the tasks, who can tell us the right and wrongs. And, and we like that type of thing. It's easy for us, Right? 
it allows them to kind of go do what they need to do, and it allows the people to kind of be able to sit in the back maybe if they wanted to. <coughs> Churches with celebrity cultures can inadvertently place pastors or leaders to rule over them. And this is what we must resist. We must resist this concept of, of putting leaders or pastors in places that will rule over them as they did in 1 Samuel 8. Like within a celebrity culture, we will idolize church ministries, we'll idolize church pastors, church leaders. We put them up on pedestals because we love their talents, we love their success, we love their giftedness, we love their charismaticness, we love their knowledge, whatever that might be. And we put them up and we say, rule us. Now again, we don't do this very blatantly a lot of times. It's something that we just almost want because we're so part of celebrity culture. We want someone to admire. We want someone who reflects the church out into the world and says, hey, this person is the person that we look to to reflect into the world. But the problem is, is it's built on things like gifts, success, talents, looks, even, I know you guys didn't do that with me, but with looks, whatever that might be, And it's not built on the thing that God looks at the most, which is the character of the person. The first king of Israel was who? Saul. And he was terrible. But guess what? He was tall, he was big, he was strong, he was smart. He was everything that you look for in a worldly king. Yet his character was not there. It actually will be found in the small shepherd, the youngest son of Jesse was the first king that you'll see is used as the embodiment of what it means to be a king of Israel. So the church community likes to put people on pedestals. We like to affiliate with people's success, their knowledge, their information. I think that's just a universal principle that's found within communities. Who represents us the best? Let's put them up there and let's look at them. Okay? Very uneasy thing to say as you all stare at me. Okay? <laughs> Not an easy thing to get out of my mouth on that one. But we do, we do. We like to go to, you know, insert famous pastor's church, right? We, we love to listen to that. We love to look at that. We love to be a part of that. If there was a, a celebrity pastor in an area, we'd be like, yes, like I go to that church, right? Like we have a sense of identity that fills us. But the problem is, is a lot of times we don't understand the consequences that we don't suffer the customary rights of kings, We don't look at it this way. And what happens is we do. We suffer the customary rights of kings. And if you were to to read through the next eight verses, 10 through 18 in this passage, what you'll find is six times the Lord says they will take from you. Three times they will say they will use you, right? And so you see a consumeristic environment and dynamic enter into the community of God where the kings start to take and they start to use people. And in fact, the kings will be taken from and be used by the people, right? Because as soon as battles aren't being won, guess who the first one who's going, who's going to get ousted? The king, right? And so you have a dynamic where you have people against people taking and using one another in an assembly of God. This happens first in Israel, and God says, you must know the consequences of this. He's like, yeah, I'll give you a king. This is going to be one. The first one you're ever going to have is going to take from you, and he's going to use your kids. He's going to put them in, in positions like chariot runners, and he's going to put them in battles, and he's like, you're going to lose some of them. Right? It's going to be a take and use dynamic. In celebrity cultures, oftentimes, even in churches, more particularly even in churches because of the dynamic, people are taken and used. 
that's probably what I see most in my experiences is that they are taken from and used because they have to align to a particular vision and mission, a vision and mission, as well as if they align to what the celebrity is doing and going for. And the community, therefore, is weakened. It's weakened by the consumer dynamic, the take-a-and-using environment. So what you'll see, too, is that it begins in dynamics that we've talked about even before this, the loyalty cultures. The, it can create narcissistic tendencies within leaders. It creates a lot of not-tove things. And a crown as king in the church often will result in relationships of pastors or leaders who are detached from the community. Right? It becomes a, a dynamic where you have your, your pastors and leaders here and your people here, and they're, they're a little bit detached. As long as these two are functioning in a way that kind of fits for both types of camps, everything seems fine. But as soon as one of these breaks down, the entire church destructs. I've seen this. Like, this is, it's not hard to find in our day and age. This is happening in a lot of churches across our, our country where you have a pastor and leadership group up here and a people down here and the people are going, hey, we're not doing well. And the pastor's like, get in line. And then this whole thing just falls apart. So Dr. Scott McKnight, he wrote a, a he's talking about or, um, um, celebrity culture. He wrote this, you'll find that people don't matter in these cultures. The institution matters. Power and fear dominate the culture. The only narratives told are those that prop up the pastor's vision and success and loyalty is the supreme virtue. This is what we're resisting. This is what we're saying. No, we're not going to build a foundation on celebrity cultures at Real Life Church Pullman. This is not who we're going to be. This is not what we are going to pursue. We are going to be aware of it, but we are going to run from it as fast as we can. Because even the Lord says in 1 Samuel 8.18, he says, you will cry out to me when you realize that this doesn't work. You will cry out to me. And the scariest thing he says at the end of it is, on that day, I'm not going to answer you. He's like, I'm telling you right now, this is what's going to happen if this enters into Israel, and you will cry out to me. And a good image of celebrity culture, I think, is this, and most of you have probably seen this before. The top one kind of embodies a well-pictured image of what it looks like to be in a celebrity culture. You have a, a boss who has a mission and a vision, and he's saying, get to work, get to work, right? Go do it. Right? It's taxing, it's hard, it's burdening, and it's hard. The celebrity has to hold up their image. Right? It's hard to, for them to even get involved with it. What we're looking for and what Jesus models for us is the bottom image. A servant leader. Someone who is a participant in the community. Who's among the people, who's with the people, who is of the people, working together for the mission of where the church is going. That is where Jesus embodied. He never was up Boston people around. He was in the trenches. He was in the camps. He was, in, he was going through all the hardships with them. He was among them and with them. In fact, they were a family. While we don't have kings necessarily in the church, we don't phrase it that way, we still must reserve the place for our king, who is our leader. You know, no elder board, no pastor is ever the head of the church. We have one head. His name is Jesus. That is who we follow. That is who is our leader. And those who are called by his name are those who lead as Jesus led, who serve as Jesus served. And that's how we resist loyalty cultures, is we value, we embrace, and we model our lives based off of the service and leadership of Jesus. 
And he has some pretty strong words to say about how we are to serve. In Mark 10, 42 through 45, this is one of my favorite passages. And if I was to put one on my wall in the office, it'd probably be this one. He says, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord over, they lord them over, they hover over and they make sure you know that they're in charge. And those in high positions act as tyrants over them, right? They're the bosses of the world, cracking the whips, telling the people to do what they must do. And a result of people, hey, hey, fight our battles for us, those kind of things. In 43, it says, but it is not so among you. Hey, in my community, it says, this is not how we live. This is not how we act. This is not how we serve. On the contrary, he says, whoever wants to become great among you will be your servant. Your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you will be a slave to all. That should, all, that should make us all stop. Right in our tracks and go, to serve means to be enslaved to one another. For even the son of man, now he uses that word son of man, this is a very important title because in Daniel 7, we read about the son of man who had all power and authority in heaven. So here he's saying, he's like, you want to know what power and authority look like? It's a slavey, being enslaved to people you're serving. You want to know what real power and authority looks like? It means you are literally coming under people. Now think about this from a first century perspective. You have people who are coming to know Jesus who are very wealthy, very powerful people. And the first thing he says is, hey, guess what? You're going to be a slave. And they may own hundreds of slaves. And you go, hey, you know those people? You're going to be like them within my community. You're going to come underneath them. The really the word is to come under so that you can lift people up. You... In, in the assembly of Jesus, you don't lift people up by standing up somewhere and going, get up here, get on my level, hurry up, just do it. No, he says you go underneath them and you lift them up. You go underneath them, you, you, would, you enslave yourself to their needs and you lift them up. And so he's saying that about the son of man, the power and authority is not used to lord over, to rule over as if a, like the kings of Israel that were warned against. He says, no, he did not come, he came to be served and to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's what power and authority means in the Jesus message, is that you are coming underneath people, you are enslaving yourself to the community, you are saying, I am going to come underneath so we can build them up. So the good church resists temptation to appoint rulers, CEOs, or kings to fight our battles, and instead we create servants, create people who will come underneath one another, not try to get them to match our levels, not to feel ruled over or lorded over, but to feel served. When we value service, our celebrity cultures tend to fade away. Celebrity cultures live on praise, acknowledgement, pedestals, right? It doesn't, that's how it thrives. It dies when it says, sacrifice yourself. It dies when you say, I'm going to be more selfless. It dies when I said, I'm going to serve like Jesus served. We reflect the goodness of God within our community because we're reflecting our servant king. That's what we're doing here. That's what we're valuing, is we're valuing the servant king mentality of our Lord Jesus. We're reflecting that out in our community here as well as out the four walls of the church. So what does it mean to serve? Paul has a good way of saying this in Galatians 5.13. He says, for you were called to be free. You were called to be free, brothers and sisters, 
Only don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Don't do it if it's this freedom that's counter to what the Spirit demands of us or wants of us. Don't do it. He says, but serve one another through love. Serve one another through love. Deluo. It's a Greek word there. Deluo means to be subjected to someone, to come underneath them. We may even use a, a good English word as the word devotion. What does it mean to be devoted to one another? To be able to come underneath somebody, to lift them up, to be there for them. And it says to do so in love. Now, biblical love is not this warm and fuzzy feeling that you get around somebody, right? That's kind of our more modern idea. Godly love is when you say, I am committed to you. I, will, I am owning how I will be committed to you. You know, when I said I, I love my wife at the altar when we got married, it was saying, I am committed to you, right? It is not saying, hey, I, I love you while this feeling's here, but then it might change tomorrow, so we'll see, right? No, it was, I am committed to you. I am committed to your well-being. I'm committed to your health. I'm committed to being a servant to you through love. So through commitment, the idea of love to each other, we come underneath one another to be devoted to the needs and cares of one another rather than taking from one another. Rather than being in this consumeristic environment of take and use, we serve and give. We serve and give, not take and use. Service opposes celebrity cultures. It cannot thrive in those environments. And it's about giving and focusing on community rather than raising up an elite few. I do not want to be the face of Real Life Church Pullman. Please don't make me that. I want Real Life Church Pullman to see a community of people, to hear about a community of people, that each and every one of us is the faces of Real Life Church every place that we go in this life. If you're here for a year or two years or 20 years, as you go into the world, you reflect the things that are of this place of what God is doing in this community, in this place. A life of serving. The face of God's reflection is in you and how you love and serve people in this world. So let me ask you a question. Are you volunteers or servants? Are we, as a people, volunteers or servants? Because there's a difference. Both are good. We, we need both volunteers and servants. Don't get me wrong, there's not, you know, but one has a, a capturing of, the, of the, the assembly of God much deeper. So volunteers serve on their own timeline and in their own area of interest. Okay, so volunteers serve on their own timeline in their own area of interest, whereas servants serve in the timeline of the community whenever there is a need. So say that again. Volunteers serve on their timeline and their own in, in their own area of interest. Servants serve in the timeline of the community whenever there is a need. So a volunteering example would be we have our annual church picnic. Well, it will be annual. We're going to do it next summer. And you're going to that, and you're saying, hey, you know, I'll show up a little early, and maybe I'll set up tables, whatnot. You know, that, that's an act of volunteering. Is it bad? Nope. We need that. That's great. Love it. It's volunteering, though, right? It's, I'm already going to that, and I'll, I'll, I'll put up tables. I'll volunteer to do that. Right? It asks the questions of, how can I help you out? What, what can I do to help you out? You know, what do you need from me? I'll, I'll help you. Has the, answers the question or asks the question, is there anything that I need to do? Hey, is there anything I need to do to make sure this event happens or whatever? Anything I need to do? Right? This is kind of how we volunteer. Serving has a different approach. Now, serving would be 
Let's say it's a Saturday morning and you're geared up to go fishing. You're like, yes, it's going to be a great day, perfect day outside. It's going to be 100 degrees. We're going to we're gonna go higher elevation so it's a little warm or a little cooler up there. And then you get outside and you see your, your neighbor's yard hasn't been mowed for weeks. And you realize, oh, no. So what serving does is it says, I'm not going to go fishing and I'm going to go mow my neighbor's yard in 100 degree weather instead. You saw a need. Wasn't very convenient, but you did it. That's serving. Serving is when the need is there outside of your own timeline and maybe even when your own interest. Serving says more around the lines of how may I help you? How may I help? Rather than how can I help? How may I help? Where volunteering is often met with a sense of drudgery, like, oh, man, I've got to do that eventing. and uh, got to volunteer again. They ask so much of us, Serving says, ah, oh, it's my privilege to be able to do this. You know, Jesus didn't volunteer the cross, did he? He wasn't like, well, I guess if it's convenient for them. No. He was like, this, this is a privilege. This is my purpose of coming here is doing this. There's a different mentality here of serving that is demonstrated by Jesus that we must reflect, that it must hit a deeper level in our lives from a place of volunteering to a place of servanthood. When we serve on the timeline of the community or others and do whatever, we, whatever is needed to make sure the community is, is doing well. And we do that with three T's. Time, talent, and treasure. Ask yourself, do I volunteer my time? Do I volunteer my talent? Do I volunteer my treasure? Or do I serve with my talent, my time, and my treasure? So as we wrestle with this question, let's look at a few of these. So, so time, for example. So love is often measured in time. The way we commit to things is often measured in time. What we, what we commit to doing says a lot about what we love, right? And, and so we must be aware and recognize the areas where we're like, are we serving with time? Are we serving people with time? Are we making time available for us to be able to serve people? And again, I'm not saying, here, hey, come serve the institution. I'm not. I'm, I'm saying, are you serving people? Are you serving people? Are you making time for them in a way where it will reflect a servant's heart? A volunteering culture devotes Devotes time when it's convenient, right? Well, I, you know, sure. I'm already going to be free this Saturday. I'll do it. A serving culture means you, you devote time when it's needed. When it's needed. When we're like, boy, the community needs people. We need servants. Are we, are we going to that level with each other? Are we saying, yes, I will serve, or will I volunteer? The second one is talent. The Lord has given us all abilities. We, we have an amazing, talented group here. I don't know if I've been in a church with so many talented people who know so much more than I do about everything. Like, it is, it is phenomenal. Like, I, it is, it's blown away. And, and some of the things I saw when I was interviewing here were, were, were just confirmation that I wanted to be a part of what was going on here. And I, and I couldn't believe that I got to do that, that I got to actually be a part of this community. I mean, I remember when, in April, when I came out, someone said, hey, like, I will go down and drive my trailer down to Utah, pick up your other car, and I will drive it up here. And I just was like, no one had ever been that nice to me in my entire life, that they would do something like that. I drive 14 hours on just, so for some guy they just barely met to help them move. 
Like I'm like oftentimes like, oh, you moved in across the street. Mm. <laughs> you know, let's be honest here, right? We're, we're transparent people. You know, but this, you know, that was something that stood out to me. It was something that I still think about. It is still something I'm like, that was such a higher bar than I was at my life. I was just like, are you kidding me? Like I was still at the volunteer level. He was like, I will die for you, right? That's like the level <laughs> he was at. You know, when you think about parable stories like Matthew 25, when, when Jesus talks about the talents, right? When he says, take your talents and, you, and he, he uses them to grow more. Right? This is the idea. Like servant hearts attract and draw in people with they just you want to be around servants, don't you? Like you want to be in relationship with those people. Like I wanted to be that guy's best friend in that moment. I was like, I know you will do anything. Right? And, and I wanted to I wanted to be like that. It, it's it's an attraction, it's drawing in in a good way of who God is making people to be. So we need to be a people who share generously with our skills and our knowledge. Right? Like I work really hard every week to make sure I try to give you everything I can in, the, in Scripture, right? to, to give you something that is, that is going to build you up, encourage you, or challenge you. Right? And, and we all have skills and talents and abilities to, to, to serve in a one way or another. You know, I don't know all of your skills and abilities and knowledge, but you do. You know, find ways to serve people with your talent. And the last one is often the hardest one, the treasure. Time, talent, and treasure. That thing that is most precious to you. Right, that thing that is most precious to you. When you think of the word precious, like what, do you, what comes to mind? You know, I think of Gollum, like, oh, precious. You know, the ring. You know, what, what comes to mind when you think of what is, what is precious to me? You know, a lot of times it's, it's financials because financials uh, carry a huge heaviness and burden on our lives. It's a treasure that we try to hold because why? It makes us feel secure, makes us feel happy, makes us sleep better at night, Right? You know, the hardest thing that I had to do was I had to go from corporate America life and I loved giving. It, it was awesome to be able to give from this place of, of having basically what a kingdom building mentality. And I thought I was a very rich man to then when God said, hey, I need you to go full time into ministry. And that was a really painful transition in that area to go from being able to give so abundantly to being able to kind of be like, I give you it. I can give you everything I got. You know, it's, there's not much there. It was a very hard thing with the Lord. I think the, even the Lord was like, you're going to do that when it's a sacrifice. Because as, as a younger guy, I was like, yeah, put me in full-time ministry, Lord. Yeah. It was, it was like a promotion for me. It was almost like he was saying, I'm going to wait till you have to sacrifice to do it. It hurt. It was painful. It took, it was a lot of anxiety and burden in my life to walk through that, but it was a sharpening experience for me. Ask Amy, it was a lot of fear. It was a lot of doubt. It hurt to make that transition. But what I realized through the pain of, of making that transition was that my treasure was in how much I was giving, how much I was felt comfort and safety in money. And it wasn't until the Lord asked me to let go of that and give my times and talents and even more treasure to the Lord, the ministry that I felt, oh, that's what that looks like. In Matthew 6, 19 through 21, Jesus says this, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The servant heart does not worry about the treasures of this place. They uses the treasures of this place to be kingdom-minded builders. 
to serve people, to serve people. They use it for serving people. You think about examples of this in Acts 4. Acts 4 is probably one of the the greatest examples of this. When the church is in its infancy, it's in Jerusalem, you know, they're all just kind of trying to figure things out, as most of us are. And it says in Acts 4 that they are of one heart and one mind, and people sold their possessions so that people would have places to live or things to eat. It said in that time there was not a needy person in the entire community. Because people saw that their possessions were being used for kingdom building, for blessing people, for loving people, for serving people, being committed to people. And there wasn't a needy mouth, wasn't a needy person in the entire community. I think we read that and go, huh, nice for them. Right? But we look back now and go, the same spirit that was doing that there can do that here. That when we serve our treasures, when we serve, not serve our treasures, sorry, when we serve through our treasure, when we say, I am going to give this over to the Lord and, and help people with it, we see something amazing happen. It's a huge witness of who our Lord is. So my dream for RLC is that we be a place that resists the temptation of celebrity, putting people on pedestals that can bring destruction. Instead, we value servanthood. We thrive to be servants as Jesus was serving. People who have power and authority things that have been given to us through God's good creation that we can then use to serve and bless people within our communities. Where volunteering moves from servant, from, moves into servanthood. Where we do things where it's not just convenient for us and we were going to do it anyways, into things that are sacrificial. Things that are tough. Things that hurt a little bit to do. Like Amy and I, early on in our marriage, we said, hey, you know what, financially, we're going to give 10% regardless of where we're at. That was just a decision we made. It wasn't, a, it wasn't a mandate. It wasn't a law. We weren't trying to be legalistic. We just said, we did it because it kind of hurts. It kind of hurts. We, we're gonna, we, want, we want to sacrifice and serve the Lord in this way. We want to see it bless people. And I've got to see it bless people, which is a fantastic prop to it. If we're going to be a place of health and sustainability, if we're going to be a place that, that has the foundation of tov and goodness, you know, these are the things that we have to develop. We need servants. We have to move from volunteering into serving. That's just a, a, a must if we are going to see what the Lord wants to do in the future for years to come. In fact, we are moving forward. Right? That we are a church that is moving forward. We are, we are taking the things of the past. We are learning from them. That we are using what God, is, God did through those to change us, to transform us. And we are moving forward as a people. All right, transparency moment. I'm going to demonstrate it. You know, when you think about, you know, as a community, you know, we are one heart, one mind. That's an important thing to remember, that we are in this together. There isn't a, a detachment between leader and people. Like, I am, we are one. We are one unified body. And I want to be transparent with you. Like, we are in a, a financial deficit every single month. You know, but I'm not, I'm not really worried. You know, we have seen God do amazing things the last few months. I was in a staff meeting on Monday, and every Monday we do a, a little roundabout about ministries and where things are going. And it was awesome to hear our, our children's pastor, Amanda, just talk about how they had more kids last Sunday, that Sunday, than we have for three years at Real Life Church. Now, you want to see a church that is multi-generational? Look what God does in the kids. That's the heart of the church. It's not in here. It's what's happening in the lives of those little ones. And that gives me great encouragement. You look at, at the people here. 
I mean, I get to see people who haven't been in church for, for a long time or they haven't been in real life for a really long time and I think they see and can observe what God is doing here. The lives that are, are being touched here in just a short amount of time. And, you know, it's one of those things where if we are going to continue to see what God wants to do in real life church for years to come, it's going to take a servant heart. It's going to take servants. It's going to take people that say, you know what, my treasures are in heaven. My time is going to be better spent serving people. My, my talents are going to be better spent serving people. You know, don't do this to keep the institution of real life church going. I won't I'll leave before I see that happening. Keep it going because God is doing something in the people of real life church. He's doing something in the children of real life church. And as a dad who has children over there, I would love nothing more than to be able to hand the keys over to those children in 30, 40 years and say, take it away. Because again, we're interim. All of us are. We have a small time where we get to spend focusing on the Lord's people doing the kingdom work here until it's their turn. That's been the story of history. And I want to make sure that we leave our kids with something far greater than what we ever inherited. Seeing a healthy, sustainable culture that pursues God's goodness that maybe we never got to see as lived out in our time, but they might. That's our motivation. Thanks for checking out this message from Real Life. You can find out more about us by going to rlcpullman.com or by following us on Facebook or YouTube. Until next time, have a great week.